This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. We can't have peace until everybody's free. And we feel like this is something we have to, we have to do our part in. And so if I'm not that, who am I? If I don't take that risk, what am I doing? Am I risking life in the name of this mission? Yes, but sometimes you do that. This week, I'm excited to introduce my friend, Summer Ali. Summer's a lawyer, a research professor, an author, a mediator, and CEO of Millions of Conversations, but that just encompasses what she's been doing this week. And so I bet you're wondering how she answers my what's missing from your resume question. She was a White House fellow in the Obama administration, one of two roles that opened her up to Islamophobia, but she has not let that vitriol and discrimination stand in the way of her path. She is constantly guided by seeking peace and freedom for all, something that has made us kindred spirits. But enough from me, you'll hear all of this in my conversation with her. Hello, welcome to Everyday Ubuntu Summer. How are we? Hi, Mungi. I'm so excited to be here with you. I know, me too. I'm, I think this is going to be a long one. I guess we'll see. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everyone, and it's a um, question from my mom, your friend Naomi, and she says that our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. So what would you say is missing from your resume that people need to know about you? I think what's missing from my resume that people really need to know about me is that I'm a small town girl at heart. Mm -hmm. I, I grew up in a rural part of America called Waverly, Tennessee, and it, it, it really is, um, you know, so much at the heart of everything that I do. And I, and I grew up as a daughter of Palestinian and Syrian immigrants. Um, and I think that, that, you know, that is not obvious when you read my resume. Um, and I think also the importance of balance between family, we've talked about this before, but the balance between um, um, family and friends and work um, and keeping all of that in balance is so important. Um, and, and, and quite frankly, it's that balance that is allows for you to live the healthiest life. So it's not just about what you do, it's not about the accolades, it's not about where you've worked. Um, it's about the experiences throughout um, those chapters um, in your everyday existence. Well, you mentioned family, so I'm wondering if you could tell my listeners a bit about your family history. <laughs> yes. Go and write it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so my father grew up in a rural town called Der Dibwan, and our family goes back to Der, our, you can trace our family's history, or, uh, our family's history back to Der Dibwan for centuries. Um, and it's a town that's um, the small village right outside from Jerusalem. Um, and it's walking distance from Ramallah. Um, without any checkpoints, you could get between um, um, Der Dibwan and Jerusalem in like 15 minutes. Um, and it's, it's my grandmother, um, who I had the um, opportunity to get to know was a, she was a farmer. That was the heart. That was her, where her heart was, you know, that was her career. That was her job, um, was, um, tilling the soil of the olive orchard. Um, and also she was a businesswoman, even though she never, um, went to school and was illiterate. Uh, she started investing in apartment complexes in Ramallah and, um, and uh, was into um, expanding um, the farmland. And she um, did that. And uh, my grandfather was a salesman, um, along with being also a farmer, but he knew they needed to help supplementing um, their income. And so half um, during parts of the year, he would be a traveling salesman in the American West. And so he would wear a, he was known for wearing an American cowboy hat and also a Palestinian kefiyah. Um, and um, that was my father's side of the family. That is my father's side of the family. And my mother's side is um, a rather, on the, on, the, on the other end, intellectual um, <laughs> family that my, my grandfather was born in Damascus, um, 
right when Sykes-Picot was being implemented, my paternal grandfather, and he lost his father to typhoid fever. And several years later, when he was seven years old, he would lose his mother. Um, and he became an orphaned um, Syrian refugee who sought refuge in Jordan um, when the Syrian people were revolting against the French who were occupying Syria. This inspired him. He ended up becoming a political prisoner and a freedom fighter. Um, he himself was um, elected as the head of party um, to the Jordanian parliament. He was um, positioned and set to become the prime minister there. Uh, and then he uh, was tried in an abstentia and received the death penalty because he called for a constitutional monarchy. Um, he later was pardoned by the King of Jordan in 1973, where he lived um, from 1973 until the year he died, which was right at the end, um, December 28th, 2005. Wow. And I know that you, you know, you've just managed this major feat of writing a book. Yes. And, and it took a lot of like, <laughs> it took, well, I don't think mine was as difficult as you, but it took a lot of, you know, digging into this history. And can you share, you know, sort of the idea behind the book and what you hope it brings to readers? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. So the book is really, it's the book is from the Holy Land to the Heartland, Olives and Sweet Tea. The tagline's one family, you know, it's really about one family's century long quest for peace through belonging. And when I think about, people talk about peace, people talk about wanting peace. And I know that my family has been wanting peace for a very long time and we've been searching for it. And, and we have, and I, I found that at the heart of it all from both my own experiences and my family's experience and my friends' experiences and people that I speak to and, and you know, as a mediator and as a conflict resolutions practitioner, when I listen really closely, what people are, and I observe, people are looking and searching for belonging. And you can't have belonging mm -hmm. if you don't feel that you're a part of a community that respects you. And you can't find that respect if you don't feel that you're living under rules and norms and a value system that um, not only respects you, but allows for your soul to thrive. And I think that it's in that moment that you find belonging. And so when people say they want freedom, in many ways, this is what they're talking about. And so my grandfather was a freedom fighter, right? My father went to Howard University in the 1960s. Um, his first check to a nonprofit living when he, was, when he became an American citizen was to the NAACP. Um, he was inspired by that civil rights movement. And when I, when you, if you, if you're sitting at my family's dinner table at any point in time, history, in time, in my lifetime, including today, what you'll find is a conversation that's happening around not only how do we um, be free, and how, but also like how do we help other people, and how do we help systems um, improve so that obstacles are removed um, and people are allowed to realize their full potential. And, and we mean this. And so when people say like they, you know, I get the question all the time, like, and there's this debate about is, is, is it an oxymoron to be a Muslim and to want democracy? That's not even a debate. So, you know, and when people say they want to, you know, bring freedom to the Middle East, and as if this is some type of a new kind of concept, you know, I mean, and I look back and I think, you know, my, my grandfather dedicated his life to fighting for freedom, to wanting freedom, for asking for that, not just for himself, but for his entire people, for the entire community, for the entire Arab world. And those principles applied across mm -hmm. the globe. Didn't just want it for the Arab world, wanted it for everybody, wanted it for Africa. He was a part of the whole 1956 movement um, in the post-colonial um, era that was seeking to constitutionalize monarchies across Africa and across the Middle East. And here we are, you know, and asking for the same thing. And when I see what's happening in Syria, What's what I what I see what's happening um, across the Middle East, what I see what's happening in the Holy Land, I see people who are asking for their freedom. It's at the heart of it all. Mm -hmm. And they want that because they want to feel belonging in their own home. Absolutely. 
Well, so I would say that you and I are sort of kindred spirits in that, you know, I feel like this, this strong belonging to be like a, like a Palestinian and you the same with South Africa. And so we're definitely going to talk about that. But if you had to explain the situation in Palestine and Israel to someone who had no idea about it, how do you, like, how do you explain it to people? Um, well, I would, <laughs> it's a great question. I would say that in many ways, it's a family feud. And it, you, there is, there's so much in common um, between um, Muslims and Jews, between Arabs and Jews, between Palestinians and Israelis, and um, also just as human beings. Um, first and foremost, we're human beings. Right. And I would say that this is a conflict that has been politicized um, to the point of where the narrative has um, run away with reality. And the reality is that peace and prosperity and progress and coexistence and mutual respect and equality is absolutely possible. And there's this narrative that it's not. And that's a false narrative. And also, I would say that there is at the at the heart of it is um, if you go back to the 1940s and if you go back to different points that were um, that were that were um, milestones in this conflict, um, but going back to the very beginning um, of this modern day conflict uh, of, of the late 1940s, um, I think you had the British Empire promise and and build expectations on the same piece of land with two different parties. Two different parties that were in pain and that have been in pain for a very long time for different reasons. And that have been gripped by fear. And I think that that fear has been played on and played on and played on and has created this cycle of trauma of what I'll call communal trauma of, that has started through by the otherization and the demonization of the other, which has sparked the cycle of blame, fear, hate, and in some instances, violence. And so this holy city- Fear is strong. Yes, this holy city, it's paralyzing. That is at the heart of this, you know, and it called Jerusalem, is being paralyzed by fear. And when you're paralyzed by fear and, and you're gripped by strife, you never experience freedom. So nobody's actually experiencing freedom. <laughs> and so what I would love to see is a modern day solution um, to people who share a lot in common, who have much more in common then they do, you know, differences come together and say, we are going to be equal. We're going to exist in equal ways. Separate is not equal. As we learned from Brown versus Board of Education, great Supreme Court case, separate is not equal. Separate can never be equal. I don't think that's up for debate. It shouldn't be. It's wasting least. time if it is. And we don't have time to waste. Because people's lives are impacted. I'm I'm I want to stick on what you said about, you know, um nobody's basically living in freedom and it makes me think of South Africa and how my mom always says, you know, white South Africans were not living great lives because they are building up these walls around themselves to protect themselves. Um, and it's, it's what will it take for people to realize that if you are so afraid of someone that you consider the other and you have to build these walls around you, that you are, you know, shutting yourself off as well. And that makes me want to ask you, why do you feel so connected to South Africa? Because <laughs> you have a whole history with the country. 
Yeah, I do. I and I actually just was on a call with um, a colleague of mine in South Africa at Vitz um, and um, Dr. Ali Tukte. You know, I immediately fell in love with South Africa, um, and it's not only I should say one of the reasons I fell in love with South Africa is because of the generosity of your own family um, and just how they opened up their hearts and their and their um in your in your family home and just like the in philosophy of life um to me um which was a magical experience um it was an inspiring experience i also felt that the people of south africa um have had an awake it's almost as if there's been an awakening um and mm-hmm. everything is on the table to discuss race is not taboo Discussing religion is not taboo. Discussing gender orientation is not taboo. Discussing sexuality is not taboo. So it's as if there's this fearlessness that's embedded within the culture that I haven't experienced and, and I had not experienced. And, and I don't know if I have experienced it yet, again, in other parts of the world. And so that was freedom. You know, it's like this kind of like a, this kind of also this buzz around what can we be and this truth about what have we been. And mm-hmm. so, and it's like, it was like this realness and this, this, this fierce and fearlessness about it that I just was like, yes, you know, I belong. <laughs> <laughs> so like my people, <laughs> like, come on, like, let's have this like rich debate and conversation of where it's okay if we don't agree and we don't have to agree, but we also know that we love each other. There's a lot of love in South Africa. There's that spirit that's there too. There's that Ubuntu, which is the name of this podcast. You know, it's that, that Ubuntu <laughs> that's there. And I just, um, you know, I just felt peace in a place where I know, I know there's pain. I know there's so much poverty. Yep. I know there's so much still, there's so much unfairness. Um, there's the constitution, which is um, an idea that's a want, you know, it's a vision that hasn't yet, the principles of it haven't yet full, has not, they have not fully yet been realized. But there's truth around the discussion and there's genuine effort. And there's the what if, that there's this, there's this future that people feel themselves a part of, that they envision themselves a part of. And, um, you know, and I think that there's obviously there's South Africa over the past several years have, has had to deal with corruption, but South Africa is not alone in its government being riddled by corruption. And where did, you know, they call us Africans and, and Middle Easterners. Where, where did we learn corruption from, if we're going to be honest? You know, I mean, and so there's in parts of the Western world, you see systems that have legalized corruption. It's just, it's not called corruption. Mm-hmm. And I think like we have to, we actually, honestly, we globally, we need to revisit the conversation is like, I think people are revolting against the government, not serving their interests, not being there for the people. The government exists to be there for the people, to work for the people. It's not an award. It's not a glory, um, you know, it's not a glory lap to be a public, when you're appointed to be, it's, it's a, it's in a position where you at every single day need to be held accountable for your constituents and the work you're doing on behalf of your constituents. Absolutely. Well, okay. So you mentioned in that, you know, your, your love for South Africa has to do with like the truth and the sort of discussions. I say like difficult conversations that have to be had and people have to be willing to engage in. And so that definitely follows with what one of your many things that you're doing now millions of conversations. What is the sort of origin and mission there of millions of conversations? Yeah. So, um, and thank you again for helping us start millions of conversations. Conversations <laughs> is, um, the mission statement is really to, is, is to build a public square where people can come in mm-hmm. and come together and bring, you know, we started off in America, bringing Americans together. Um, around common values um, to work towards a shared future and to do this by transcending divides. And it's by, it's embedded in the philosophy of this, yes, is forgiveness. 
which you know very well. Um, and But it's also mm -hmm. a recognizing and realizing that it's difficult to, to find and to have and to be able in your heart to forgive if you don't have reciprocity, if you don't feel reciprocity in the relationship with the other. Um, and, and also you can't have that too. And you can't have the justice piece to this, um, which allows for you to freely forgive if you don't have the accountability and if you don't have the truth and if you're not willing to face the truth as a collective community. And so we have, that's, that's the big vision, right? And then what we have done mm -hmm. is um, studied how we counter disinformation campaigns and how we counter misinformation campaigns and these campaigns in a post, um, truth political context that takes the other and demonizes them and the demonization process which leads as i mentioned before to building on animosity against the other and this is what happens at the speed of life in a social media campaign so you have labeling of the other which leads to demonizing of the other which creates animosity against the other which then leads to blaming that other for you name it any kind of um, as the scapegoat for an economic ailment, for um, for the the city not working properly, for not having you know, like I mentioned, not having a job, for um, not feeling appreciated, and etc. Whatever it is that's going, not not having a good education system, and etc. You have that that's the animosity that leads to the blame. The blame um, leads to anger, so you begin to build anger. Yep. Um, that anger hardens into fear. The fear leads to hate, the hate leads to violence. And so it's disrupting that cycle that we're working on at Millions of Conversations by countering those toxic messages online with 30 second, 60 second, 90 second clips that bring that brings people um, to want to develop positive norms. So to counter those demonizing messages with positive messages, which inspires people to set positive norms rather than to move towards negative norms. So when you build positive norms in the community, you're doing what? You're creating a sense of belonging. You're creating that sense of belonging because you're creating values, you're creating principles, you're creating ideas that make people feel protected and also at the same time that they are a part of the solution. And so that they, does you restore agency in that way too. And so, and not in just so what we want to do is not just to disrupt the negativity, we want to replace it with positivity. And at the same time, the long game here is sustainable peace in America. And because we feel that um, there we we have faced we're in a modern times, um, we are facing deep polarization, deep division in America right now. And in order to transcend those divides, we have developed and designed a seven step process to sustainable peace. And it starts with listening. It says seven steps starts with listening to the other. And so we've developed a listening guide. So the first step is listening. The second step is humanizing. When you begin to listen, you start to humanize that other person, humanize that other group, mm -hmm. see humanity, which they've been stripped down. That's how dehumanization works. Um, so you begin to build that back up. Step two. Step three is empathy. Once you begin to humanize and you're listening, you start to empathize and say, well, I haven't had that same lived experience, but I'm walking in your shoes now. I'm seeing it. I'm feeling it. I'm hearing you. I'm with you. Ubuntu. Step three. Step four is exploring shared values. Exploring common values, rather. So we don't, we're not going to have all the same values, but do we have three or four values that we have in common? And can we discuss what those are? And so, and like, let's have dialogue about that. And so then step five is committing to a shared future, which is really important um, because that's when you say, I actually see you in my future and I want to be a part of your future. So shared future, also a book too. Wow. And step six is truth and reconciliation. Because I think that truth and reconciliation, when done right, from everything I've learned from you, your family, and other people about truth and reconciliation, it can be a very, it's very complex in ways that I'm still learning. And it can be very, mm -hmm. very traumatizing experience. Um, even when it's done right, trauma surfaces, individual trauma, communal trauma. And in order to, to even go through that journey and process, 
you have to say it's worth it. And it's worth it if you've decided to continue to live together and you see it and you see a potential for a shared future. Otherwise, it's probably not worth it. And then if you do right. step six, correct truth and reconciliation, you do it right, you do it well, and you say, okay, you know, here are the parts from our past that we want to take forward with us. And here is the, the brutality and the baggage that we've learned from and the pain and that we have acknowledged and said, I'm sorry, and asked for forgiveness for, you know, it's that those moments. And, and in some instances, you know, some instances, absolutely accountability, not some instances, there has to be accountability. Mm -hmm. You have that, you have that understanding. That's the awakening, right? And that's what I felt in South Africa when I was there too. And that's when you're, there, you're, you're on your way to sustainable peace. I have two, two thoughts about that. First, I really like that truth and reconciliation follows from all of those other things, because I see so many things in the US these days where people are like, we need to do a TRC. We, got, we should do this. This is what we need to do. And I'm like, well, we're a very divided country, and we still can't agree that slavery happened and racism still exists and donald trump did not win the election so i don't think you're ready for a trc let me just tell you that so i like right. thank you that it's all these steps that build up to that foundation and the other thing is is the the putting out the positivity is when the um georgia senatorial election was happening i you know all these ads are coming to us in georgia obviously and the the Kelly Leffler ones about Raphael Warnock were always so, so negative. And yeah. his, I never saw a negative one. And it just made her seem so out of touch because I yeah. was like, wow, that really put such a nasty taste in my mouth. He has yet to do one negative ad about you. What yeah. are you doing? Like, are you not <laughs> reading the room? Right, right, right. She's dehumanizing. I mean, you're politicizing, right? You're politicizing. Mm -hmm. um, um, an identity. And I just think that can we focus on the issues? Can we focus on, on, you know, what matters to the people? Exactly. And, you know, that's what we really Absolutely. need to be talking about here. <laughs> so I think like that's what we need oh. as that's what Moons of Conversations wants to help do is for to um, ask for the, con the political dialogue and conversation to be about the policies that are going to affect everyday Americans. And for people, mm -hmm. when they go to Washington and when they go to their state legislatures and when they're legislating, when they're developing policies, when they're helping the government run on time, I mean, again, and people are like, oh, that's very idealistic. That's democracy. So, <laughs> so okay. <laughs> so, like, if we're going to be idealistic about anything, we need us to be idealistic about that. Um, so like, yeah. I'm not sure if you're not doing that, what are we doing? So, cause someone, yeah, like, are we not on the same that? page? Yeah. It's like, are we doing democracy or are we not? And it's, a, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, what are we doing here? And then like, to this other point on the truth and reconciliation, like, yes, it's a process. And, and that's what we want people to understand, like the complexity of it. And also just to say, you know, America's a big country. It's, we've got almost, mm -hmm. you know, um, um, 350 million people. And um, we were 3,142 counties. We're now 3,141 counties. And the majority of those counties are rural. And we're a republic. So how are we, we I'm not saying it's impossible to do a national truth and reconciliation process. I'm just saying we need to be specific. And we need to and we need to understand it's going it's not going to happen and it's not going to happen in 2021 it could happen in 2024 it could happen in 2025 but but several things that we're going to have to get on the same page even that we want collectively that the majority of us want that i think we need it yep. but i can't force it on people no everyone has to has to be willing to work to it well okay so speaking of work um, you know, you, you don't do easy work. So I imagine there are tough things that you witness, but then you also have, you know, you're Syrian, you're Palestinian, you were a woman living in the U S there's a lot of trauma that like gets compounded and tragedy. And so I'm wondering what keeps you going in these tough moments? You know, it's a good question. And I don't say this lightly. Um, there's a few answers to it. 
one is my friendship with people like you and your mother and your family. And because, um, you know, I'll give an example. Um, I was struggling with an issue just this past December and your mother knows it. So, I mean, so I only pick up the phone when it's serious. Um, and I was having a moment, um, a very vulnerable moment about a decision that I needed to make. Um, and I was struggling and I just picked up the phone and I just started crying. And it was like, you know, in many ways, our conversation was like coming home. And she helped me through that. She, you know, she really helped me through that decision-making tree about reminding me the work I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and the decision I needed to make in that moment to allow for me to be true to who I am. And because it was this thing of like, you know, you every and it realizing also that people look to you sometimes to lead and they think you have all the answers, but you don't. Right. And, and so it's sometimes you yourself, part of leading is admitting you don't have all the answers and that you need help. And like, but, but also then knowing who to trust and who to come to when you in those vulnerable moments and having that. And if I didn't have people that I could go to in those moments, I don't know if I could do what I do, you know? And it's that support that's so critically important. That's, that's on the personal side. I went personal before professional. That's on the personal side. Professionally, I oftentimes think about, if I stop this work, what will happen? And I'm not saying that I can save the world, but I will be doing my part to that, to the, to the Palestinian refugees that I promised when I taught Taekwondo in Lebanon to them that I would work for their, you know, as, as someone who's a, who's a privileged human in so many ways that I would do my part as much as possible to help in, you know, create fairer systems and systems that would hopefully lead to one day their own freedom. And to people who, um, even down the street and from me in Nashville, Tennessee, um, I live 15 minutes away from the most incarcerated zip code in America. And if somebody with my privilege sort of says, I'm tired, this is too hard, or like they're demonizing me, or, you know, I'm going home. I just think giving up's not an option. And so I really think about the people I'm trying to serve as a, as, you know, as a, as a member of the collective community, a really, truly. Um, and, and that's where like the whole balance I say too, of like not letting the ego get caught up in the career either. And so like making sure like my ego is satisfied in other ways. Um, and I think like that's, that's an important piece to this too. I get that. But then, you know, there are like really moments where you're like, oh, hell no. Yeah. Because I mean, let's talk yeah. about you, you were a White House fellow and we saw all of the birtherism stuff that happened around Obama, but then also you were appointed to the Tennessee Department of Economic and Community Development by Governor Bill Haslam. And it was just like open season on you as yeah. a Muslim woman yeah. being appointed to this. We were going to bring in Sharia law and et cetera. And I mean, you were receiving death threats and just all this vitriol. And I would have been like, you know what, y'all, peace out. This, yeah. is, this is not what we're going to do. Because it, behind the death threats, I mean, do you have thoughts like, okay, well, what good am I to people if I'm like dead now? Like, I, I can't help yeah. these people. Right. And so how do, you, how do you continue fighting for justice in, in those kind of moments? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, and, and it was in those moments. So yeah, thank you, Mungi, for asking that. And I would say, you know, I, I definitely know that I'm assuming risk. And I talk about this in the book too. I, I go into this in detail in the book. Um, and about the shock and, and the, the, and the hurt that I felt, um, when I was first targeted, um, in the Obama administration, um, and, and it got caught up in this whole, um, um, movement about whether or not Obama was born in America and about, about, um, whether or not he was secretly a Muslim and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and, and, and then here, I, 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 I genuinely felt 
Um, and based on there was an individual who's was being investigated by law enforcement for attempted murder against me. And, you know, I thought, you know, I might not make it. I might get shot. I might get killed. And um, again, I turned to friends and family and talked about what am I doing here? Um, and should this is something that I should continue doing? Is it worth it? And I oftentimes say, you know, I, I don't want to die a cheap death. So in, in traveling in conflict zones and working around the world and, and in America too, in high risk areas, like I don't take stupid risk, you know? Yep. Um, so I won't walk into a dangerous situation just to feel the danger um, or, you know, or just sort of like take a meeting that I know could end up um, very, you know, I, I, might, I might get shot if I'm in that meeting. Um, or that that meeting might get targeted. You can you can postpone the meeting, you know, or you can move the meeting. There are different ways to deal with that. No, your husband your husband your husband may disagree and say that there <laughs> have been moments where you have made some decisions <laughs> that he questions. <laughs> but we don't have to go into that. Definitely, but I think it goes back to this thing about my family, and that's one of the reasons we just I decided to write this book on a family memoir about like, and, and I remember my father was asking me, "Why are you taking this risk?" And I thought about it, mm -hmm. and I was sitting at that table over over brunch on Sunday, and I said, "It's your fault." I mean, look at both of you. My mom was sitting there too. <laughs> like, this is who we are. This is how you raised me, and that's when the book idea came in my mind. Was like, why am I doing this? Well. It's our family's work and it is, it is our, we've been, and I said, you know, we've been actually working at this for arguably at least a century. And, and it's because we can't find belonging until everybody is free. We can't have peace yeah. until everybody's free. And we feel like this is something we have to, we have to do our part in. And so if I'm not that, who am I? If I don't take that risk, what am I doing? And so, yes, yeah. am I risking life in the name of this mission? Yes. But sometimes you do that and you make that choice and you say it's worth it. Because that's who you are. I, I get that. Yeah. So then who, who are the people who have inspired you? Clearly your family, but I'm sure there are many. Yeah. I mean, obviously I'll say, I'll name the obvious and I'll go in, you know, obviously Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Naomi <laughs> Tutu and you, Mungi, as well. Mungi, you've taught me a lot and we taught, you know, in, in, in so many ways, um, you're, you're a wise soul. Um, I have been inspired by, um, I've been inspired by so many people. There's somebody who also comes to my mind who's a recent immigrant to the United States, and um, she's a um, she cleans houses for a living. And I know her well, and we've known each other now for almost five years. And she inspires me by her attitude, um, and just like she's just like just her her positive energy, because um, I know how hard her job is. And I see her walk in every week with a smile on her face and a genuine, authentic care for everybody around her and, and positive energy. And that's inspiring to me. Um, and I'm also, I it's just, just brilliant, it's truly inspiring. And I also find it, um, you know, I, another person, Judge Edwin Cameron, um, um, his work, his life's work has been very inspiring to me too. Um, I would say, um, President Obama um, is somebody who's inspired me for many reasons, including the um, the obstacles he's overcome, and the um, and he's he'll be the first person to say, and he has said it. He didn't always he doesn't always get it right, but he has this power of of belief in not only himself but in humanity, and I found that to be very inspiring. Um, 
And, uh, you know me, I can go on and on about people that have inspired me because I'm getting yeah. inspired every day. I mean, um, Professor Tracy George at Vanderbilt inspired me, you know, like I mean, so many different people um, have and for different reasons. I'm like, oh, that's inspiring. I mean, um, the poet at the inauguration, um, Amanda Gorman. Wow. Um, yeah. Inspiring, right? Incredibly inspiring. I think about that. I was mm-hmm. thinking about her yesterday, too. I was like, you know. Human beings want to be inspired. We want, we crave that. We want inspiration. That's also going back to the humanity piece. This is part of what we want. You know, it's inspiring. Okay, we want inspiration. So, okay, what advice, inspiration <laughs> do you have for young girls? You said it. I'm yeah. It. Yeah, no, totally. Um, number one, I want young girls to always hold on to their esteem. Because I think that there is, there is that society and people and drama and all of that is always coming at our esteem. And so if there's one piece of advice is hold on to your esteem and make sure at the end of the day, it's you who's deciding who you are. And, um, number two is to say, um, lift each other up. It's a sisterhood. And, you know, um, when you're in the room and you're the only woman in the room, see how you can bring in two more next time and then three more and four more. And then when you hear a woman make a point and you're at the table, reinforce the point as another woman and make sure you say that person's name. And and I think, um, um, you know, I'll never forget. Um, I won't go off on too much of a tangent here, but when Madeline Albright said about her voice being the only female voice in the room and what that felt like. And I think that it's really important, um, for, for young women to know that women, regardless of age are here for you and want to see you succeed. Another example of your mother and her leadership. So I'll never forget this. I received this award, um, um, a a Young Women's Leader Award in Nashville when I was graduating from Vanderbilt University. And um, your mother was in the audience. And I looked up to her and I, you know, and I, I I had several meetings with her at that point, but didn't know her like I do now. And we'd known each other for about a year. And I got up to get the award. People were clapping. Your mother stood up and started cheering and clapping for me. And I had tears in my eyes because of that. Not because of receiving the award, but because of feeling that feeling that support from another woman that I looked up to and I was inspired by. That makes such a difference because you feel the support. You feel like I'm gonna, you know, that's, that's important. So I want young girls to know that. I also want young girls to know it's so critical to balance, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, family, personal and professional. And you can say family and personal go together, but like just that, you know, I want people to change the world, young girls, think about how you can change the world. And also know that you have to make sure you're always um, happy as you do it, because you won't realize your potential unless you are happy. And so think a lot about what is it that makes me happy? What is it that makes me feel me? Where am I most grounded in my human existence? And then from there, how can I help? Yeah, it makes a true difference to to constantly be trying to figure out what makes you happy and then doing the work from there. It it kind of is, it's easier. Yeah. Because you feel sort of secure in yourself. Yes, and you're not betraying your own life story existence. And that gets to who am I? Who do I want to be? And I think there's always like tension between the story you tell yourself about yourself, the story that others tell the world about you, and the story that you tell the world about yourself. And yeah. I think that the story we tell ourselves about ourselves is the one to hold the closest. And and um you know, and I, and I think that I think that also knowing that change is possible and follow your dreams. I mean, that's something that's a Hallmark card. But seriously, like follow your dreams, because if you don't, what else are you going to do? Follow your nightmares? No. Oh. <laughs> so. oh. 
Okay. I, I mean, it's like you were just, you were just in my brain. Okay. What is one of your dreams? <laughs> you just said, follow your yeah, dreams. Definitely. One of my dreams is for us to, so I have several dreams. One of my dreams is for us to um, realize peace, true peace, sustainable peace. Um, and I, I think in many ways are connected um, in America and the Middle East, um, both. Um, those are two homes of mine and bicultural, as you know, and tricultural if you count South Africa. Um, so, you know, I want true, true peace. Um, and and um, I, I, I want for Palestinians and Israelis and Arabs and Jews and um, and and um, people living in the Holy Land to experience true freedom, freedom from fear, freedom from strife, and to work together in this 21st century to experience a new level of, um, you know, a new level of human potential that's equal, mm -hmm. that's different than what has existed um, in the 20th century. Dignity. Uh, in the past few years. Exactly. Dignity. Dignity. To go through that seven-step process that I talked about. And I really hope it happens in my lifetime because every person connected to that conflict deserves it. And in the United States, what I hope for is that we find our shared American purpose and that we develop a sense of security to be able to fully acknowledge our past wrongs mm -hmm. and to fully step into our power as a democracy and the responsibility that comes with that power and to not make exceptions to the principles right. that we stand by in our domestic policy decisions or in our foreign policy decisions. I think our constitutional values, yes, as a nation state actor in a world that's structured as a nation state globe, to not think that our principles and our values and our policies stop at our nation's borders. Yeah. Stop the, the interests over the values. And I think that if that can happen, then my dream in there is that that's where I will truly find and we will truly find belonging. So what would you say is your greatest fear for humanity? My greatest fear for humanity is that we, um, we live in authorizing environments for cruelty. We saw, mm. um, I mean, the Holocaust is a horrific example of this. Um, genocide and genocide happens when you have authorizing environments for barbarism and cruelty. And I hope to God that in our lifetime, we don't see another genocide. And, and that's one of the reasons why we have to collectively work to disrupt that cycle that leads to violence, that cycle that I described earlier. And that's why I'm sounding the alarm bells on these disinformation and misinformation campaigns that are dehumanizing, stripping down people of their humanity at lightning speed, at the speed of a button, of a send or a like on Facebook. It's mm -hmm. that politicization that leads to criminalization of one's identity. There are times of where I feel like my identity is being criminalized. It's been politicized for sure. And in Definitely. some instances, there's such confusion that people are, and people, people are criminalizing it. How can one feel free if their identity is criminalized? I don't know. I, can you at all? When someone is speaking on behalf of your identity? Well, the U.S. has some, we have some issues there. <laughs> On what, we, on what, how, how we understand freedom of speech is, is something that our entire nation has not grasped. 
the I mean, the U.S. has to also think really hard about what what is values-based intelligence in the 21st century. I have a lot of things to say about the emotional <laughs> intelligence I think we show, but I will not bore you with that. I do want to ask you, though, what is your greatest hope for humanity? My greatest hope for humanity is that we realize our humanity, is that we see each other's humanity. No, seriously, you know, I mean, is that we just sort of like, if I encounter a stranger on the street, I'm like, I care about you and I want this system to work for you. And I want you to realize your your potential in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. I genuinely want that, you know? And it's like, when I see somebody who's on the street, who's homeless, I don't think of that person as, um, I, you know, I don't think of that person as, um, I don't think of that person as someone who um, can't get a job or couldn't get a job. I think it was, where did the system fail you? Mm-hmm. I don't think about where did you fail the system? I think about where did the system fail you and how can we get you um, back on your, how can we help together work to you realizing your, your, your potential? Because, you know, I really feel, and this is, um, I know idealistic, but like, I really feel that life is a gift. And I thought about that when my life, you know, the times that my life has been in danger. And as you asked me earlier in this podcast, the risk and, and, and the death threats and realizing that, you know, I could get killed and I could get assassinated. God forbid, God forbid. But I want to live every day to its max. My father had cancer when I was 11 years old. He almost, I almost saw, I almost lost my father to cancer. That was such a, that was a, a lesson I'll never forget in as 11 year old. Girl, life is not infinite. And there are chapters in life. And I want everybody to have the privilege to live the life they want to live. Mm-hmm. And that's my hope for humanity. Every, and that's how I look at it. I truly look at it this way. I don't look at countries that should only belong to people of a certain religion or countries should only belong to people of a certain race or countries should only belong to certain people of a certain ethnicity. And, and part of my, my worry is that, that immigration becomes a new way of discriminating against people on the basis of class, on the basis of religion, on the basis of gender, on the basis of sex, on the basis of sexuality, et cetera. That that's, um, you know, that gets in the way. It doesn't just get in the way. I mean, it, 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 for some people it's, it's, you know, it paralyzes their existence. Well, Summer, I think that we could go on, but I will let you get back to doing what you've been doing. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of this podcast and and the impact that it's having and will have um, on, on this listeners. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at moongi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.